personal opinion, that song, and we could just sing it over and over again. I could sing that 17 more times. I could also listen to Heather and her kids talk a little bit about their testimony. Um, I love Zane. He, uh, the family caught me out at Target. It was Thursday night, and Zane looked over. The, the young man who preached uh, the, sh- uh, the shortest and best sermon you'll hear today, uh, he leaned over into my shopping cart and noticed that I had some Little Debbie oatmeal cream pies. And he picked one of them up, one of the two boxes I was buying, and read off some of the harmful contents uh, there. And I quickly let him know, I'm not eating these. They're not for me. But uh, Zane Zane also, by the way, uh, he thinks that Daniel Wagner is the senior pastor of Fondra Church. And so when he sees me out, he calls me the senior associate pastor. So God, smite that child, please. No, I'm just kidding. That's pretty harsh. Yeah, I'm just kidding on the front row. Um, we're wrapping up influence today, at least the sermon series, but I sure hope we're not wrapping up influence. We want to influence each other. We want to influence a watching world. We want to influence the next generation, parents, fathers, particularly. We want to influence our young ones and our land. We want to influence with joy and laughter last week. And today I want to talk about the ways that we influence and something really in particular. I'd love for you to leave uh, in a little bit today with a verse memorized and I think it'll be uh, kind of easy to do as we preach this and as you, as you listen. There's a lot of ways that we relate to one another. We all have a default a mode. And it can be manipulation and control. It can be ignore and avoid. It can be edify and inspire. Of those three categories, what, what, what are you drawn to? What do you hope for? What do you want to receive? What do you want to give? No one in their virtuous heart says, you know, I want to be manipulated and controlled. Or I want to be ignored and avoided. We have devices today. Have you ever, y'all know this trick where you can act like you're talking to somebody on the phone and just avoid somebody and walk past them? Um, we don't do that at Fondra Church, but they do at other places. Well, you can manipulate control. You can ignore and avoid. Or you can edify and inspire. I am convinced that deep down everybody, uh, there's a deep-seated desire in us. We don't wear a sign, although it'd be cool if we had one. But deep down, there's this unspoken request, motivate me inspire me, believe the best in me, challenge me, speak truth to me when I'm tempted to quit, help make me strong, help me live according to my most important decisions and my deepest values. We long for that. It's unspoken. It's on all of us. There's this heart's cry for us to edify and inspire. How are we doing? How are you doing? The scripture gives us a list of commands, and that just sounds kind of like uninviting, doesn't it? But what could be, what could be true of you? What could be true of us if we lived this out? Now, our side screens aren't working well and we're trying to get a new center screen. So we're putting this up here strategically so you'll either sit up front or give some money so we can buy the center screen. But the scripture gives us these commands to love one another, you know, on and on. You see them. We preach them a lot. You hear me say often that the role of the church relationally, because Jesus, quoting Tony Evans, the pastor in Dallas, he says, Jesus is horizontal. He wrote a best-selling book called Horizontal Jesus. And when we realize who Jesus is, we realize that he's horizontal, that he affects all of our relationships. And we say the challenge here, the invitation here is to one another, one another. That's what I hope we're doing. If you're in leadership, I hope you're one anothering one another. Laura McAlpin is our leader. She directs our groups and our congregational care. She oversees a ton. She spearheads this ministry where we're looking out for one another. We're doing what we hope John Wesley once said long ago. We're watching in love for one another. And as we live these out, we're going to be better. Hey, newsflash, a family or church, a team that's not living this out, morale is low. Families fracture without this. 
Teams tear apart. Churches exhibit conflict. And then you have people who blame and quit and complain and badmouth and point fingers and show up late and make excuses on and on and on. And I've gotten a close-up view of this a little bit, a, ch- a church, a, a ch- church uh, here, a church uh, out of state. And it's sad to me to see the conversations that could have been had, the love that could have been demonstrated if we hadn't have stopped, uh, if we had stopped trying to be so nice, if we had not settled for terminal niceness and chose rather speaking love to one another. So these one another's will make sense and they'll be given fuel and life if we live out this other one another. And it, it comes to us from Proverbs 15, 30, 31. We'll put it up and I want you to have this down in memory before you go today and recall it this week. It says this, one who listens to life-giving rebukes will be at home among the wise. Now there's a bad word in there. Maybe we shouldn't have children in the room, but there's, a, there's a, almost a cuss word in this passage. Can you pick out the bad word? It's the only word in this passage you don't like. It's the only one that has baggage. It's the only one that's super negative, and it's the word, not in singular, but in the plural. It's the word rebukes. All right, God, it'd be cool if I could just get one rebuke. Just one rebuke, and then I'm good to go. Just one time in my life, someone had to correct me, discipline me, if you will, and then I'm good to go. Man, I want that, but it's an ongoing thing. The one who listens to life-giving rebukes. Now, why is the word rebuke a negative word? When you see correction, discipline, or rebuke, it seems to be negative because all we've seen is negative. It's come with so much baggage because there's been manipulation or control. There's been um, ignoring or avoiding instead of edifying and inspiring. But if we're going to be the type of people who edify and inspire, we are going to need to walk this out, to listen to life-giving rebukes. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that it's full of baggage, and I want to ask the question centrally this morning, why don't we live this out? Why do we quit and blame and complain and point fingers and badmouth? Why does morale go low? Why do teams tear apart and families fracture and churches live in conflict? What can we do differently? Why don't we do this well, let me back up and illustrate for a bit. There's a guy named Eric Richmond. He worked at a zoo. Eric Richmond worked at a zoo that had a 13-foot king cobra snake. This king cobra snake, so large with all of its venom, when the venom sac or glands are full, it can kill a thousand human beings. When it one, one, at one time in the life of this king cobra snake. Uh, at the zoo, it shed its skin as it does on the annual, but it, uh, its eye cap didn't form correctly. So they had to do this surgery, but it had to be live. They had to go in for whatever reasons. I'm not an expert on snakes, but uh, they, they couldn't do the anesthesia. So they went in and they had to have a team of five people. That team was comprised of a veterinarian, the zoo curator, two zookeepers, and Eric Richmond himself. And so, so they went in, and then when they went into the, the cage, this 13-foot king cobra snake slithers toward them and spans its cape and hisses at them and is looking at them like, which one is first? And their brows were sweating, and their palms and knees and such were, were shaking. And one of them, the curator, looked at them and said, all right, men, let's do this fast. One, two, three. And they threw the net over this, and one of them went, the vet went behind the king cobra to grab it uh, from behind and 
they told Eric Richmond, they said, hey, stuff some paper towels in the snake. And he did. And the snake, it ended up after a few minutes being full of venom. And it was all yellow and everything. And while they were performing this uh, procedure without anesthesia, the curator was reminding Eric Richmond that uh, every year elephants, some of the largest land animals uh, in the world, die from a king cobra snake bite. That when the venom is full, as this king cobra was, there's no way that a man could survive a snake bite. And he also informed them that most snake bites occur not when you grab the snake, but when you let it go. It's easy to grab. It's hard to let go. One, one more time. It's easy to grab, but it's hard to let go. And what's true of a snake, a 13-foot king cobra, is true of the things that can slide into your life and serpent-like destroy you. There are so many things, hear me church, there are so many things that are much easier to grab and so much harder to let go. Oh, I got that credit card because I am uh, pre-approved for this card and I can get this credit card and I can start spending on that card. It's easy to grab that credit card, but it's so hard to let it go. Before you know it, the other proverb is true that the borrower is servant or slave to the lender. Uh, it was so easy to work extra long this weekend, to spend a few nights extra at the office, to pour myself out for the company, to the neglect of my family. Oh, that was easy to grab hold of, but it's so hard to let go, and you realize that it's held you down, and you're cheating your family, and you become a bona fide, certified, verified workaholic. It's so easy to watch the flickering pixels and to enter into a private fantasy world where you surf and you skim where you scroll. It's so easy to grab hold of that. It's so easy to practice deceit. It's easy to grab hold of deceit. But what does the writer say? Oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. It's easy to tell that first lie. That's easy. But letting go of a life of deception is so much more difficult. You go back to the original story. When Eve was tempted by the servant, I want, to, I want to point to you what she did not do because what she did not do is so significant. She didn't talk to Adam about the serpent. She didn't have a discussion with God about it. She thought, I could handle this snake on my own. And temptation becomes very dangerous to you and I. You, you know you're in trouble with temptation if you haven't told anybody about the temptation. If it is completely private, that temptation has all the more power over you. Thank God for our brothers and sisters here in the house today, the ones here earlier, the ones watching from home, our brothers and sisters who know about addiction and about recovery, who come to church and celebrate the days or weeks or months or even years that they've been sober, but they know that this, uh, this, uh, this idolatry, this addiction can enslave them. They know their weakness and they know they have to talk about it. They know they have to get help with it, but why do we so often think we can do it on our own? I don't need someone to give me life-giving rebukes. Who are you to rebuke me? I'm okay. I can handle this on my own. Elijah was approached in 1 Kings 19 by an angel, and the angel, this is that great passage of scripture where he's told that he needs a nap and a snack. Can I get an amen? You're not doing well. You need a nap and a snack. I will practice that later on. But uh, here's what it says in this passage that's significant. The journey will be too much for you. We celebrate. I heard a song, I'm an independent woman. We celebrate independence. I'm a self-made man. We celebrate our self-sufficiency. 
I pulled myself up from my, you know, by my own bootstraps. But hear me, a central message. The way God has designed us is for us to realize that the journey will be too much for you. Can I tell you that that's better preventively, like anything, it's better done in prevention than when you're in a wreck at the bottom of the mountain and you're beaten and you're bloody and you're like, man, I was wrong. I grabbed something and it's danger. It was more dangerous when I was letting it go. You know what? I couldn't. I couldn't let it go. It was just too, I had to have it. And I thought, I thought it wasn't much. I thought I could handle it. I thought I was self-sufficient. I thought I was independent, but the journey will be too much for us. So I see this invitation to live out these one another's, to love one another, pray for one another, confess our sins to one another, admonish one another, bear one another's burdens, outdo one another in showing honor. Of all of these um, commands to encourage one another, I see these and I see this promise of Proverbs 15, 31, the one who listens to life-giving rebukes will, will, will be at home in the house of wisdom. I, I see this and I think, why don't we? Now, if we were in a group and I was a leader and I asked that question, what would your answer be? Why don't we listen to life-giving rebukes? Why don't we, why aren't we more knitted together in relationships where this can happen? Because the journey is going to be too much for you. The temptation is destroying, look at me, the temptation is destroying lives all around the room. Three of us were on the third floor outside the elevator this week and we all had been with somebody who was in dire straits with their marriage, with their parenting, with something really difficult. And we just like, we're like, let's, we gotta, we gotta hunker down. We need God's spirit to work. The enemy is active. It, the journey is too much for you. Why don't we speak life-giving truths? Why, why won't you hear it? To what extent are you defensive in your life? To what extent when someone says, why are you eating Little Debbie oatmeal cream cookies and you say it's not for me and to what extent are you defensive and do you deflect two words I want to give you self-justification and shame and I want to shed some new light somewhat controversial controversially on the word shame self-justification is when you you have a reason for something you have an excuse and when someone sits down and says hey I want to talk to you you, you, you point backwards. You've got an excuse, and it's hurting you, and it's hurting us, and it's hurting the church. One more time, teams tear apart, families fracture. The church continues in conflict without us giving and receiving life-giving rebukes, ongoing relationships, self-justification. King Saul gives us a lot of how-not-tos in the Scripture. King Saul was told to wait before he goes into battle, there's a difficult situation. His men are starting to hide in caves. They're going to desert him. You'll see in a second. He, King Saul is supposed to wait on Samuel because Samuel's not just a dude. Samuel's a prophet. And Samuel's going to bring the word of the Lord and he needs to wait on God. Lauren put a passage up in that last song that we sang from Psalm 27, I believe, that we should wait patiently for the Lord. Saul did not wait patiently for the Lord. He did not receive the life-giving instructions that he needed. He rushed Ahead, He got ahead of God. Look what it says in this passage of 1 Samuel chapter 13. We'll read verses 6 through 12. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves and thickets among rocks and in holes and cisterns. 
Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship of offerings. You're about to see self-justification. Then he offered the burnt offering. Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him. And Samuel asked, what have you done? Saul answered, when I saw that the troops were deserting me and you didn't come with the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgog and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. You didn't come. You didn't arrive. You were late. Who's disobedience? If you have a study Bible and you were to read later, 1 Samuel 13, 6 through 12, you'll see at the head, heading of that, it will probably say something like Saul's failure. This isn't on Samuel. This is on Saul. And it's so easy for me to play King Saul. And when I have outpaced God, when I've rushed ahead when in my disobedience and God brings a prophet, I blame the prophet. I twist the scripture and I say, oh, it's your fault. God, it's your fault. Genesis chapter three and verse 12. I don't have it on the screen. You probably know what it says. Uh, Adam blames Eve. It's the woman's fault. Saul said it's Samuel's fault. Adam said it's Eve's fault. Long before Jimmy Buffett said, some people think that there's a woman to blame. Come on. But I know it's my own fault. <laughs> Adam is playing Jimmy Buffett long before Margaritaville. And he's saying, hey, it's her fault. It's a woman's fault. And what's he doing? Self-justification. That's in you and that's in me. And you won't grow. And we will fracture. And there'll be damage all around, strewn all around the church house. Because we'll quit and we'll blame. And we'll complain. We'll quit. We'll make excuses. We'll talk about instead of talking to one another. Because it ain't my fault. And so self-justification, I just want to ask you. I want to ask you to what extent you experience self-justification. Several months ago, someone uh, was with me and treated me to a breakfast at Primo's. And during the course of the conversation, he said, you know, Robert, you've really grown as a leader and you, you take criticism so much better these days. And I'm, I didn't hear anything he said after that. I mean, inwardly, can I tell you my, my, my twisted self? I was like, wait, I have always received criticism well. And who's going to, I mean, what's there to criticize, really? I mean, you know, I wake up and follow Jesus, and I'm a pastor, and, you know, all these terrible, deceitful things were ruminating within me. What does he mean? When did, when did I not take criticism well? And I got defensive about how less defensive I now am. And apparently I used to be defensive. But self-justification can cripple us. And I watch people implode. I watch churches fall. A pastor sat with me this week and I couldn't help but think, why couldn't y'all have conversations earlier on? Why did it have to come to this? And I know that we own a part of that and you own a part of it. And it's a struggle for all of us to some more than others. Self-justification. Secondly, shame. And shame we say, and I preach before, is always a bad thing. 
but maybe not entirely. I know, controversial. They say, the people who study human development and growth, I'm not talking about pediatricians and children growing into adults, but spiritual and social and relational maturity and all, that three things really change us. You're not going to change unless you experience fear, pain, or shame. And so if there's a shame that doesn't hover over you, that doesn't define you, that doesn't mark your life, if there's a shame that brings fear and pain, that makes you sit in it and go, I can do better, I can be better, this is not who I am, then let's let shame have that effect in our lives. Now, the words rebuke, we can't get past life-giving rebuke because of the word rebuke. And it seems bad because all we've seen is bad when it comes to discipline, correction, and rebuke. I'm going to put up in just a second, I'm going to put up an image on the screen that everybody saw. Everybody this week saw this image and almost everybody had a strong opinion about it. We think rebuke is yelling and walking away. But you know what a life-giving rebuke is? It's attachment. It's when you say, I'm not walking away. I'm going to stay. And so really, if you want my opinion, and I was for the Niners, so you know where my opinion's about to go, but I don't think a player should ever be, able, be allowed to talk to a coach like that. I, I'm just one of those that value authority. I mean, it wouldn't, I'm, I just don't think you should do that. But ultimately, these two guys, and almost no one else knows their level of attachment. He knows if he can handle that. I think his brother called him out this week that said he crossed the line, so maybe he will listen to that as a life-giving rebuke, and he's, you know, in love with some pop star, so I'm not sure he's, you know, even knows I'm preaching about him. But this is not rebuke, but this is what we think of when we think of it. We think it's yelling and walking away, but a life-giving rebuke has two important components that can transcend our self-justification and our shame, most importantly, our shame. It's attachment. That's the first, attachment. And it says, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here. And the other is reminder. Because if you think of life-giving rebuke is someone who's better than another person is about to correct them, then you've got it all wrong. Let's look at it differently because God does. And we see it in Jesus. We'll look at that as we close. But think of life-giving rebukes as attachment. I'm going to stay. I'm not going anywhere. We have group identity. Okay, And by the way, if you're just an individual, if you're not committed to a church and a local body of believers, if you're not in a circle um, and you're about yourself, then this sermon's not going to land very well with you. But if you're like, I'm a part of other people, I lead a family, I, I love a family, I'm part of a family, I'm a part of, I'm learning, stumbling maybe, like a newborn calf, I'm trying to figure out how to be involved in a church. But this is about group identity. The stronger the joy and laughter, like we talked about last week, the stronger the sense of group identity, the more openness we are, the less self-justification, and the more we can deal with our shame. Attachment and reminder. So when you give life-giving rebuke, you know what you're doing? It's an invitation for them to remember their identity. It's an invitation for them to remember when you are given a life-giving rebuke, you're saying, I believe in you. I know that you're, you have a sacred calling, that your best efforts matter, and that your worst failures will one day be redeemed. 
And if there's joy and laughter and deep attachment and they know you're not yelling and walking away that you're going to stay and there's group identity, you're saying we and not just you. You know what they hear on the other side? They hear that they have a sacred calling, that their decisions matter and that their worst failures will one day be redeemed. So there's attachment and group identity and there's remembering and remindering. And what do we need to remember? This, this passage was the first verse we ever shared almost 10 years ago when Fondren Church came to this building on March 30th, 2014. Romans 8.1 says this. After Paul said he's a wretched sinner, after he said the things that I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do that I don't want to do, he admitted this. And then he said, therefore, not the transition you were thinking. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For some of you, how do I say this? For some of you, you're relationally weak and timid. You allow uh, for codependency, for people to walk on you. Can I look at you today in love and say, you don't let anybody condemn you. You stop letting someone bring condemnation to you. Because in Jesus Christ, look at me, there is therefore no more condemnation. Look at verse 33 and verse 34. Everybody needs to hear it, but some of us more than others. Who can bring an accusation? Stop letting them define who you are. Stop letting a nasty rebuke, someone that yelled and walked away, they don't determine who you are. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? It's rhetorical. Nobody can. God is the one who justifies. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for God. Last week I asked you, what's your picture of Jesus? If you have trouble reconciling Jesus and laughter, what's your picture of Jesus? Remember in John three seventeen, Jesus said after the most famous writing in all of um, history and literature, Jesus said, John three seventeen, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I came to give my life. I came to save the world and give my life a ransom for many. This is not a green light for anybody here to condemn somebody else. That's not what this is. When you bring a life-giving rebuke, you're saying, remember who you are. And can I say, church, I want God to form in us a strong sense of group identity. Colossians three twelve. How about this? Therefore, as God's, who are you? Chosen ones, as holy and dearly loved. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is who you are. This is what you should wear. When I have given someone words that have fallen and they've hit their target, there had to be correction. I've been on this side of it. Let me tell you, I'm reminding them of who they are. I'm reminding them of what they've forgotten. That's not who you are. God says you're this. And by the way, we all need life-giving rebukes because all of us have made important decisions. And all of us have deeply held values. And all of us struggle with those important decisions. And all of us struggle to live out those deeply held values. So we need the life-giving relationships. We're reminding each other of who God says. Can I just say, ask your church? I mean, give, give me some response. If we see it that way, is that a little different? Like, is, is that a green light for somebody to say, man, we don't have to suffer with terminal niceness. Like, we can risk it, and we can have some of these conversations, and we don't have to walk in so much dysfunction. And let me just say to all the insiders who are followers of Jesus, man, the enemy is having his way, and the world is laughing at us. Laughing at us because we don't make this a regular practice. Attachment. Reminders. Peter would write in 2 Peter 1.15, he would write this. And by the way... Um, 
I know you're going to multitask here. I'm, I'm going to make a commentary before I read it. But uh, we, the American Christian, oftentimes we come to church and come to small group and Bible study. And we're like, you know, tickle my ears and give me some new doctrine. I want to learn some new revelation. And so much of what we need is to be reminded of what we already know. And Peter writes and he says, and I will also make every effort so that you are what? Able to recall so that you're reminded what's true. That these things at any time are... These things at any, any time after my departure. Boy, I struggled then, didn't I? But all the verses before this and all the verses after this talk about who we are. And he's saying, I want to remind you who you are. Christian, I want to remind you who you are. I want to remind you that there's no condemnation. That you are not to allow anybody to condemn you or to define you. You're not your worst mistake. You're not your biggest failure. You're who Jesus said. You're a chosen people. You're royal. You're holy and blameless. Even when it's not a part of your practical experience, positionally, it's true. And that's what a life-giving, a life-giving rebuke looks at someone. And by the way, it's a relationship of attachment. That means, I'm saying it a lot, we've laughed together. There's been a lot of laughter. Rebukes never work if there hadn't been laughter before the reviews. I'm not saying show up and tell five jokes and then you know, condemn somebody. But I'm just saying, when there's laughter and attachment, when that person knows you're not going anywhere, whew, you've got an opportunity. You've got an opportunity. I'm so thankful that a few men through the decades have said to me, Robert, you forgot who you are. You forgot. And publicly, I may be putting up a projecting image, but privately, I'm beating myself up. And I'm condemning myself. I'm doing the very things that I'm preaching against right now. But a life-giving rebuke has helped me. Listening to a life-giving rebuke has helped me. Two quick stories from Jesus and Luke chapter 10. Both are worth your read later. You'll be familiar with uh, these stories possibly. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 70 to uh, go do ministry. Let's just keep it simple. He said, y'all go do ministry. It involved casting out demons and healing some people. And the power of God went out from them. And they returned. Luke 10 tells us that the, the disciples, the 70, they returned rejoicing that the demons were submissive to them, that the spirits were subject to them. And so here's what Jesus does. He responds and he says, don't rejoice. You know, I, I have given you, and by the way, um, backing up, they say, hey, we are rejoicing. They came back and said, the demons are submissive to us um, in your name. And I, I envision that, that they're like, the demons are submissive to us in your name. But, but to us, I mean, it's, yeah, it's in your name, but it's to us. And Jesus stops. And I think a lot of us, as pastors and elders and church leaders in America, we would just let that slide because they had seen ministry success, which we all need to rethink ministry success. If you study the American church over the last 30 years, the guys that went and planted churches that have had incredible success or have deconstructed their faith, that have left their families. There's a train wreck of people who've seen ministry success. So Jesus isn't against ministry success, and we should be open to any ministry success that God does in our midst. But Jesus offers loving, life-giving rebuke. He doesn't spoil their joy. He enhances their joy, and he says the kingdom of God is primarily about character transformation. This is a teachable moment. I want to tell you, don't rejoice in results. Rejoice in the relationship. Don't rejoice that the demons tremble at you. Jesus said, I gave you authority. He was reminding them because they probably put emphasis on the demons uh, they tremble at us. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions, to have all authority over the power of the enemy. But he says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice what? Do you know? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
What will we follow? Will we live and find joy in the flickering glow of ministry success or in the radiant face of a heavenly father who loves us? Another story, you know it, ladies, you know it more than the men. Martha and Mary, Jesus in Luke 10 is walking through this village. He gets invited to these sisters' house. Uh, real quick, I'll tell you, they uh, prepare a meal, but Martha is serving and Mary is listening. I mean, it's God in human flesh. And Mary is listening to the words of Jesus and Martha is serving. And he says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But Mary has chosen the needful part, the part that won't be taken away from her. Martha, Martha is not a strong reprimand or a stern rebuke. It's not ugliness. It's not condemnation. Sometimes we can read it that way. But Martha, Martha is a term of attachment. He's saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not yelling at you. I'm not talking you down and walking away. But here's a teachable moment because in the kingdom of God, character change is the key thing. And he says, the, Mary, that's not going to be taken. It's deep attachment. He rejoices, he shows his love, and he promises that it won't be taken away. Jesus is the one who shows us how to bring a life-giving rebuke. Jesus shows us that we ought to be a people who one another, one another. We need to, in the words of John Wesley, watchfully love one another. Where we're looking out for each other and we're ready to say, Hey, bro, hey, sister, here's what I see. You've forgotten who you are. I want to remind you. And we remind each other that there's no condemnation. The greatest joy that we can experience is that our names are written in heaven. Come on. But remember the passage. We'll put it up again. Proverbs 15, 31. One who listens. So I want to show you two really fast videos. And I want, you, I want to ask you if there's two creatures. And I want to ask you if they're listening. What about both creatures says that they're listening, that they're watching? Because life-giving rebukes only matter if you're listening the proper way. If you're married, men, you know you can listen to your wife without listening to your wife. And you've learned the hard way, haven't you? Let, take a look and tell me if they're listening. I was looking on the school app. It says you got an assignment missing. Uh, I was part of that DNA worksheet, but the teacher said we didn't have to do it. The teacher said that you don't have to do it. Yep. But it's still showing up on the app that it's missing. I guess. Well, this is driving your grade down quite a bit. I need you to ask her about it tomorrow so that she can take this off. Uh, Mrs. Peterson doesn't like when kids ask her questions. I'm sorry, she doesn't like it when you guys ask questions? Yeah, she gets all mad and stuff. I don't care if she likes it or not. You need to, this needs to be cleared up. So you can ask her or I can ask her. <sighs> she doesn't like when parents email her a bunch of about stuff either. So she gets mad about that too, so. I'm going to email her and I'm going to say, I'm going to ask her, according to my son, you told the class that this assignment was not due. Is there truth to that? Well, I didn't hear her actually say it. Kyle's the one that told me. Who's Kyle? I've never even heard of Kyle before. Kyle, the kid that sits next to me. Okay, so some kid named Kyle, and you're not even friends with him. He just sits next to you. He tells you that the teacher said that it's not due and you're taking his word for it. Yeah. Okay, here are your choices. You can do it now and turn it in and get point tanked off for it being late. Or I can email the teacher and probably find out that it's due anyways. And then you have to do it and then you get points taken off because it's late. Ugh, just do it. I'll just do it. Okay, good choice. Thank you. So is he listening? All right, 
another one of God's creatures, God's most precious creatures. Watch and see if this creature is listening and watching. Silent star in the Provorov's household, it's Drake the pup star. Personally, I never thought he was enjoying it this much. that creature listening? Listen, our posture before God matters. And I know it's a silly image, both of these, but hey, you're either like the sloppy teenager wearing the ball cap, looking at their phone. That's the type of listener you are before God. Or you're like this beautiful furry creature that's all ears and all eyes and that's listening for any word from its master, any word they can discern. They're trying to make out what the meaning is. And that's two diametrically opposed ways to listen. So as the team makes their way up and we close in song in just a moment, I want to ask you, what's your heart posture to God? Church, real quick, because some of you are in a small group, I'm going to give you this content so that you can study it later. Rebuke is life-giving, according to the Bible, when we give it promptly, privately, patiently, and I think this is a word, pleasantly. This is sponsored, this part of the sermon is sponsored by Petty Peck, Patty Peck, perfect pricing. But uh, Ephesians and Matthew and Proverbs and Galatians tell us how to give a rebuke. And if we follow this, character formation can happen. Gaps in your character can be met when, when people expect something from you and then they experience something else. They can look at you and learn, hey, this is the way to give it. Would you stand and let me pray for us? Father, help us as we close and go that we would be a people formed, that we would remind each other that this is not about walking around, pointing fingers and correcting people. This is about us being attached. And unlike yelling and walking away, we're, we're lovingly bringing correction and we're staying. And we're reminding people because we're a people who forget. And some of us have forgot who we are. We need those reminders. Lord, I know the enemy is prowling around like a serpent, like a lion slithering and roaming and looking to destroy marriages and relationships. And I pray for your help. I pray for your healing. I pray that we would cling and not give up and that if anybody's experiencing condemnation, that they would experience Holy Spirit conviction. That you're not going to leave them. Despite their sin, you're not going to forsake them. That we would be a people that reminds each other of us. In Jesus we pray. Amen. We're right up against the clock, but let's give God a few minutes. If we can pray for you, if you have a decision, let's sing out today and you come today.